Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, today we're going to be talking about climate risk and specifically the implications of the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, SFDR, which comes into effect on the 10th of March. And with me to discuss the myriad implications of climate risk for financial services firms are Mike Cowan, Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert for TRRI, and Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor, Risk at TRRI. Now, at the heart of tackling climate risk is the Paris Agreement, which I'm sure most people have heard of. And that sets climate targets. Those targets and a broader focus on sustainability have implications for the financial services sector. And regulators have taken the job of carving up those financial risks into two main buckets. The first one is the physical risk. So that's risks related to specific weather events, heat waves, floods, wildfires, storms. The recent extreme weather in Texas is just one example of that. And the longer term shifts in the climate, and that's everything from changes in precipitation, extreme weather variability, sea level rise and rising mean temperature. Now, in the oven bucket is transition risk, and that's the risks arising from the process of adjustment towards the low carbon economy we're all aiming for. Drivers include climate related developments in policy and regulation, the emergence of disruptive technology or business models, and market risks arising from shifting sentiment and societal preferences. And that's before we even get to the evolving evidence, the frameworks and the legal interpretations. Now, one of the many practical outputs of the climate related policy developments is the SFDR. So, Mike, what is the SFDR and what is it trying to achieve? Um, hi, Susanna. Hi, Lindsay. And hello, everybody. Um, yeah, let me answer the question in two ways. Firstly, some uh, brief background. Um, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, SFDR, uh, is part of the European Commission's uh, package of, re of reforms relating to sustainable finance under the EU Action Plan on Finance's Sustainable Growth. Um, the core, there's three core parts of the regime. The SFDR, which we're talking about today, the Taxonomy Regulation, which establishes criteria for uh, determining whether an economic activity is environmentally sustainable, and the Low Carbon Benchmarks Regulation. Now, the SFDR aims to harmonise disclosures by investment managers, financial advisors, and other financial institutions to investors on sustainable information. Now, the regulations uh, have taken their normal course through the European Commission, uh, and the date for implementation for much of this is the 10th of March uh, 2021, so in a few days' time. Um, so, um, the agreement on the core Level 1 regulation uh, in the EU was approved in 2019. Um, after that, a Level 2 consultation on the draft technical standards, effectively how the regulation is going to be put into practice, um, was issued for comment in April 2020. Um, with a September deadline for, for responses. However, due to the pandemic and the need, the need for what they called to properly address the complex issues contained in the joint consultation paper, 
Uh, the Joint Committee on European Supervisors, which is effectively um, ESMA, the European Securities and Markets Authority, uh, EOPA, the uh, European Insurance and Occupational Pension Authority, and the EBA, the European Banking Authority, uh, were given extra time to finalise the, the, the technical standards. Now, the gap between, um, uh, between the Level 1 um, regulations coming out and the, the Level 2 uh, RTS being uh, agreed has left some gaps, and these gaps were, in, were try, uh, tried to be uh, plugged by the, um, the supervisory or, or European supervisors in January with um, a list of questions to the European Commission. Um, these um, um, w w seem to have been answered because in February a final um, RTS has been issued by the European supervisors. Uh, and the next step for that is that, the, that the, is that the final RTS is issued to the European Commission for approval. And that's sort of where we are. Um, the March implementation date for the Level 1 requirements has not changed. Uh, it's, the majority of these, uh, these articles will come into force on the 10th of March. But the final RTS has not been agreed, and there's some speculation that that might not be in place until 2022. So, um, one of the objectives of the, of the SFDR was to harmonise disclosures across member states. And there is a risk that this individual uh, and this gap will uh, affect um, that harmonisation, i.e. member states might pick up their own individual interpretation of what the level one SFDR means to them, albeit that, that in places it's quite specific. To prevent this, the uh, European supervisors have issued a statement to try and put more consistency across member states and to plug some of these gaps. Um, um, between the 10th of March and whenever the RTS is approved. So that's where we are. They, the, 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 dead, the SFDR comes into force on the 10th of March. There is some guidance there from the European supervisors as to what they are, are, um, um, are, what firms should do, but the actual final RTS hasn't been approved and speculation is that it may not be approved until 2022. Secondly, uh, and just let me cover the main points of, of the SFDR. So what is all this about? Well, it's a Europe, an EU regulation, as we've, we've, we've alluded to, um, to be applied across member states of the EU. I suppose if there is any good news here, uh, they, uh, the, there is the fact that it doesn't apply in the UK. Uh, the, FS, the SFDR has not been onshored into the UK domestic law uh, following the Brexit transition period. And so... Um, investment managers in the UK will not be required to comply with this as long as they're only doing investment business in the UK. If they're actually doing investment business um, within the EU, then th this brings the SFDR back onto their plates. So there are a number of layers of required disclosures at both firm and product level that the SFDR requires. The SFDR splits, splits um, the product level disclosures into three categories. There's products that promote environmental or social characteristics. There's products that have sustainability as an investment objective. And there are all other products that, are, that, 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 that firms may, may do. And firms need to bucket one of, of their products into one of these three categories. I mean, at firm level, firms must include on, on, on their website 
uh, descriptions of their policies um, with respect to sustainability. So, for example, uh, the, the regulations going to things like sustainability risks policy, um, have firms a policy on the integration of sustainable risks in, in its investment decision-making process. The due diligence policy, you know, um, have firms um, put in place a, a policy that requires them to implement a due diligence policy with respect to the principal adverse impacts of an investment decision. Remuneration policy, do firms need to review and update its remuneration policy to include information on how the policy is consistent with the integration of sustainability risks. Uh, marketing communications have to be amended accordingly as well. And so when it comes to, um, to things at, uh, at fund or portfolio level, the products um, that promote um, um, climate risk characteristics, or at least have, a, have a, this is a sustainability objective, must make a pre-contractual disclosure in the form of a mandatory template. And this includes things like uh, the product's sustainability objective, uh, the investment strategy, um, an explanation of the indicators of how, how the ad adverse impacts uh, are taken into account, and a list of these sustainability indicators, which we'll come on to in, 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 in a bit. So fundamentally, um, the SFDR, a European regulation, being through the European um, 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 structure for getting regulations to the statute books, as it were, apart from the final RTS hasn't been agreed, albeit that there are um, guidance now in place uh, to do this, uh, to, to make, uh, for firms to follow, to be able to make the necessary disclosures at both firm and product level. Mike, thank you. Gosh, there is an awful lot for firms to think about there. And I realise not yet in the UK, but the UK, of course, has its own climate risk agenda. And we'll, we'll see where that gets to. So, Lindsay, the regulatory technical standards supporting or underlying the SFDR are both controversial and now, as, as Mike has been saying, extremely late. So what are firms actually doing in practice to tackle these problems? Um. Yes, so they are late, as Mike said, and um, we're still with a, sitting with a final draft, as Mike also said. But I think we are, firms are now in a much better place than they were at the end of January. The, the, the final uh, draft re uh, uh, regulatory uh, technical standards are markedly different to those in um, that were produced and consulted on originally. Um, but before I, I delve into the, the, the bowels of those and, and particularly pick out what has been the most controversial aspect of them, I just want to take a step back and um, remind everybody about what um, this is all about. This is essentially lawmakers trying to end greenwashing. There is a wall of money coming um, at ESG products um, globally and European citizens um, you know, in, in, in this instance. And, and lawmakers are rightly trying to stop uh, that money uh, ending up in something that isn't actually green. And greenwashing always means green, but you know, in this purpose, you know, uh, uh, in 
in child labor, for example, you know, um, in the, in the um, supply chain. Um, so, so that's what this is about. This is about creating a set of standards and metrics that everybody has to um, follow. And I'm kind of always reminded whenever I hear regulators and industry debate the merits of, of um, setting metrics, the, uh, and uh, bear with me and I will <laughs> explain, the, uh, the, the film poster for the Kevin Costner movie, Phil, Field of Dreams, had the catch line, uh, if you build it, they will come. And I, this always comes into my head because you have to start from somewhere. And this is what the regulators and lawmakers are trying to do. They admit freely that what they have is not perfect. It will probably need changing. But at the same time, we have to start collecting data now and we have to make our best efforts of that data so that it's comparable. So that's sort of, I think it's important to keep that in mind um, you know, when, when we're thinking about this. And um, Stephen Major, the chair of ESMA, um, when he uh, unveiled the new final technical standards, regulators standards, sorry, um, in February, he said, um, you know, it's a significant set of rules issued today provide a strong basis to improve ESG reporting and combat greenwashing. They strike a careful balance between achieving common disclosure across a range of financial products covered by the SSDR and recognizing that they will be included in documents that are very diverse in length and complexity. The ESAs have listened to the consultation feedback from stakeholders and have adjusted the proposed disclosures. Um, and I think, you know, it's fair to say, you know, Stephen isn't exaggerating there. They absolutely have listened. Um, the original proposal had 32 what are known as principal adverse impact uh, uh, mandatory disclosures that firms had to calculate and display. That's now been reduced to 14 after consultation. The um, original proposal was to include 10 years historic data. That's now five. Industry wanted three, so I guess five is a bit of a compromise. Um, there is more scope for qualitative explanations alongside the uh, quantitative uh, data that's um, being uh, mandated. Um, and there's, there's a, the qualitative, there's added an actions taken column um, where you can, you can say what you're, what you're doing. Um, and then industry didn't like the idea of uh, the data had to be captured throughout the year. So sort of on a continuous basis. And that's now been reduced to four st uh, snapshots throughout the year. So you know, there has been a lot um, changed, and it's 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 not surprising when you consider um, they the East has received 165 responses to this consultation, and they had a further 800 comments at the open hearing, which they took in into consideration. So the, a lot has changed. It's more manageable. Um, to to Mark's point, firms have to adhere to level one, but there's a lot more direction now. Um, in what, while the level two is not there yet, there's, firms have a lot more idea about where what they need to do to start collecting the data. Um, so both Mike and I have mentioned this word, principal adverse impacts, which um, is a new term, I think, um, coined by the 
uh, European lawmakers who drafted this. Um, what they are are um, metrics, basically, to so that investors, potentially, but more likely journalists, investment advisors, uh, academics, will be able to hold firms to account for what they're investing. Um, so as I said, there were originally 32, there's now 14, um, and firms will need to start collecting the data on this. The, the, um, the jargon is best efforts, and best efforts has an order attached to it, so they have to get the data from the investee company, preferably if the investee company can't provide it, they can use an external data source, or the third option is they can just kind of guess, but we'll have to kind of explain their guess. Um, I'll, I'll touch on three specific examples in a minute, but I just wanted to tackle the other main industry complaint about the directive, which ESMA well, and the ESAs have not addressed because it is out with their remit. It's in the level one. There's nothing they can do about it. And that is the reporting of these these principal adverse impact um, metrics has to be done at entity level, not product level. So if you are a financial services organization who have 500 employees, then you have to report this data for every product you have, but it has to be pulled together in one figure for your firm. So it's not product level, which is what industry preferred. It is very much for your across your entire uh organization. Um, so just finally, because I'm aware time is, is um, getting on, I just want to touch on where there are still some issues with these principal adverse impact uh, things. So for example, um, I think if, if I t stick to what's still there, okay, so if we look at look down the list of what's still there, there is um, there there are a couple on gender diversity, so board diversity, gender diversity, and gender diversity in your across your portfolio holdings in general. Um, the thing about this is it's quite a blunt tool, and it's it's the only metric. So there isn't uh, there isn't a, for example an ethnic diversity uh, metric to include it in, in, include there as well. There's no socioeconomic. Um, diversity, and as you know, I, I've written often, and I, I'm not alone in this. The you know, gender is a pretty blunt tool. If you are replacing one privately educated university graduate with another privately educated university graduate, it it you know, it's it's not really diversity. So the, the, you know, and, and this was pointed out. This the, the sort of the the maybe the bluntness of this this metric was pointed out by a lot of respondents um the the other two i want to just very quickly touch uh, touch on are have now fallen from the compulsory list to the optional list um so child labor and um is now an optional so you only have to report the option of you, you can choose whether or not you report whether any of your uh, investee companies would be um, you know are involved or not in in child labor um, you know which might strike some people as odd and then the other one which has slipped from the mandatory to the um, optional list is CEO pay um, which I have to say I attended the 
open hearing uh, last July, uh, virtually, obviously, because we were in lockdown. And um, the um, this I have to th this in the meeting this came up. This was the most raised issue, which was a little bit sad, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so anyway, so the CEO pay ratio has, is now optional. Um, so I just I just wanted to flag that as well. And I shall I shall leave it there for the time being, Susanna. Thank you. Fascinating. I mean, one sort of, I suppose, twist in the tail. Do you get the sense that firms would get additional kudos from stakeholders, investors, whatever, for including the things that are now on the optional list? Or do you get the sense that people are going to just stick to these other mandatory things? These are the only things we're going to disclose. I, th I think the firms that really want to drive home their their expertise in this will will use more of the the additional the optional ones as well because they are i i think a lot of people would expect to see them there i don't get me wrong i i, I understand the reasoning behind slimming down the list in the first instance and they're clear that they could maybe add to them in the you know from the some of the additional some of the optional ones could become mandatory in the future but start with the shorter list it's just um i'm not quite sure that the the, the balance is is the right one per personally um if you look at the um if if you look at what for example the millennials and gen z are in you know are concerned about and their investment choice you know it, it when making investment choices I, i'm not quite sure that they wouldn't expect to see you know if you look at the hub hub about well and justified we so sorry i'm not i'm not i'm not saying it's not justified um the, the boohoo fashion chain which is which is just in the last 24 hours um uh, some uh, charity no some ngo is trying to have it barred from the us because of its supply chain but the boohoo um it obviously it came to the fore in in covid lockdown when the conditions at its factories came to light and you know in the uk so the, the labor how things are you know the whole fast fa fast fashion movement these things supply chain matter to people and um you, you know i'm not saying I mean, you know, it, I'm not saying they matter more or less than, I'm, you know, than other things that are on the list, but it's just an interesting balance that's been struck there. So, so I agree. Um, I think that, I think Lindsay actually in the nail on the head and, and as an aside, <laughs> who would have thought Lindsay was a Field of Dreams fan, but we'll come on to that in a minute. <laughs> um, 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 I think Lindsay hit the nail on the head when she, in, 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 when she was uh, talking earlier around this is the start. I think we all agree that this is this is a good idea. You know, climate climate risk, climate change, sustainability. It's all got to to, to move um, some somewhere, and this is really the start of that. And I so and so Lin, Lin, for me, Lindsay is absolutely right that firms that, that that wish to take this seriously will embrace it and will move forward with it in, into the coming years and and and, and the future. Um, I think at the moment, however, um, um, there is a risk that um, it may have an impact on the type of products that investment firms offer because they may see the whole 
data gathering, the whole uh, analysis of that. Uh, Lindsay makes the um, example of the CEO pay, for example, as just being too difficult at the moment. And it, they and some of the firms probably around the periphery of this may um, decide not to move forward with with their products. There's a there's a real um, there's a problem there's a risk of that. Um, because there, there are a number of, 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 of cost implications to collecting the data um, through a resource, albeit that, again, Lindsay's quite right, it's through reasonable means, best efforts uh, approach. Uh, they can invoke external firms, marketing firms, etc. Again, there comes a cost to that. Um, just the general, um, so firms will see a cost to, to all of this, albeit that the bigger picture is a great idea and the way that, 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 we, that, that we should be moving. Um, but I th but just to just I suppose a caveat to what Lindsay was saying is that some of the firms may think this is all a bit too difficult at the moment. So no no I, I, I have to say I think the whole investor choice question and the potential limitation of that choice because firms, let's be frank, firms are going to be very cash strapped coming out of the pandemic. And if this is something that becomes unduly burdensome in terms of cost, I suspect they are going to tread very lightly with it and make sure that they get get away is perhaps a bit pejorative, but they are not going to do anything that increases their cost base unduly because they can't afford it just at the moment. Um, difficult choices all around for firms because, of course, they want the street cred for being you know, known to be taking climate risk seriously. Sustainability is there way forward and certainly with the generation coming along uh, behind all of us they are very very focused on that and to survive into the future financial services firms are going to have to take that seriously and perhaps even more be seen to be taking it seriously so mike if i can pick up again with you given the position firms face now then and and as a takeaway from this particular podcast what if they need to focus on given SFDR principal adverse impacts and and the data conundrum. Well, yeah, you, 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 again, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I've got a number of things that that we've already touched on, um, which which I'll just recap briefly. And there's a couple of things that I want to add here as well. So, uh, so the cost of data gathering pre um, and presentation of that. Um, is something that firms have got to look into and, and, and take away and really sit down from a strategic perspective and work out how best uh, to, 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 to do that. I think that the timing um, disappointed firms a little in that it's looking like a lot of the reporting of this data is going to be in 2022, uh, which means the collection of it is going to start within the next few months. Um, I think firms were hoping for 2023, but I think it's 2022 now. Um, um, so there's the cost implication, but I think to sum up my other points, I think that there is um, a wider corporate governance considerations here. Now, now, now firms will be will be familiar with um, with um, things like uh, product governance arrangements and, and and that type of thing, and their products in this space may well have already gone through that process in a number of different times. Um, but I think the SFDR not only brings about product changes or product disclosure changes, but it also widens it to the wide, the larger organisation. And things like reviewing of policies um, and reviewing of procedures 
um, and getting them amended through the relevant governance um, 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 arrangements that the firm has, um, I think is vital at the, uh, through all of this. Um, and like I said, the product governance arrangements also need to be adhered to so that firms can demonstrate that they've been through a, an intelligent controlled process when it comes to um, um, uh, complying with, it, with, with the F SFDR. So I think there's a number of things here. I think there's I think there's the cost implications. I think there's timing implications. I think there's presentational present um, 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 issues to be considered. And I think this has all got to be wrapped up around it within their corporate governance um, requirements and their product governance development procedures. Thank you. Yes, I mean I think picking up perhaps on the governance point in particular. Lindsay, given all this, we've got climate risk, SFDR, and the need for firms to adapt and change how they're doing things. So is this yet another area where personal liability could arrive for financial services folks? Uh, yes. I mean, not in the in the personal liability sense that I guess we're most used to talking about um, at the moment, which is the SFCR, SMCR in the in the UK, because obviously this is a European piece of legislation. And while it does apply to UK firms it, um, who have uh, whose products are caught by it, it's it's not going to um, be policed by the FCA in any way. So, it you know th there won't be that measure. But I think where um, at what this is intended to do is the part of the package that the Mike was talking about. It, um, it's intended to allow sort of the calling out really of you know firms really need to not just talk the talk but walk the talk as well I, I, um, uh, Liz uh, Ginko the um, uh, former uh, chair of the UN compact when I spoke to her last year she, she you know she said um, there's a real rhetoric gap um, with boards and and CEOs when it comes to in financial services industry it comes to what they say and what they actually do and you know and that's um, more than uh, apparent if you look at voting records. So I think this is just a, a first stage here um, with this, with this um, regulation to try and illuminate uh, where, that, you know, where that gap is and hopefully get it closed. What I, I would say is that obviously this is just part of a package, but also for UK firms looking at this, they must should be mindful that the UK is going to have its own taxonomy at some point um, towards the end of the year, possibly into 2022. So I, I think they need to be thinking about when they're thinking about the data frameworks that they're perhaps going to use to comply with this. They need it needs to be thought of in a in a bigger package, and that that is definitely something that needs to be taken on at board level. Um, you know, these, these are you know big decisions that have to you know, big spends are going to follow this. So it has to be at that level. And so that's, I think, where the personal accountability around this um, uh, this regulation and this the whole ESG space, it comes in. Well, you know, this isn't uh, something, as I said, it's not SMCR, but it, it still needs to be part and parcel of those, those uh, upper echelons in a, in a business's decision making. Mm. And those decisions, as you say, yeah. come with cost. Um, I think we really oh, sorry, have... I just want to... Oh, no, Lynn, I just want to throw one more thing in, just on the UK. 
I, it was interesting when I looked at the um, the 196 page feedback report that came out on the 2nd of February with the new um, new final draft RTS. The largest number of respondents to the consultation were from the UK. 18% of all respondents were UK based. So it's very much something that is on the agenda in the UK. Perfect way to round up. Thank you very much, Linz, and thank you very much, Mike. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. And we do, as ever, hope you found it both interesting and useful. A selection of articles by Lindsay and Mike can be found in the episode notes together with a TV clip of Mike chatting some more about the implications of the SFDR. Also in the episode notes will be a download link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence. And if you could, please do review the podcast and let us know any suggestions you have for future topics. Goodbye. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.